Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I interview filmmaker Sam Green, along with the founder of the Kronos Quartet, David Harrington. They've collaborated on a new documentary called A Thousand Thoughts about the history of the Kronos Quartet. The work is presented exclusively as a live performance. It had a world premiere at Sundance in 2018 and has toured to over a dozen cities with more to come. It stops in New York on April 25th. I've gathered a bunch of stuff on this computer. I've got sheet music, a lot of photographs I scanned, some old films and a bunch of interviews. And with all of this, you and I are going to make an experience of the Kronos Quartet tonight. On stage, Sam narrates and Kronos plays against the backdrop of film clips, including archival footage and interviews that Sam conducted with Kronos members and collaborators. In his narration, Sam describes how it all came together. When I first pitched the idea of doing this show to David Harrington, I said it would be a live documentary. You'd be there playing in person so people could really feel the music. Music would be at the heart of the piece as it should be. He said, I don't get it. Would it be a film or a concert or a lecture? I said, it would be all three. And he said, I love it. This isn't Sam's first time doing a live documentary. He also performs with Yola Tango for a project called the love song of R. Buckminster Fuller. He directed the documentary The Weather Underground in collaboration with Bill Siegel that was nominated for an Oscar. Sam was first contacted by Kronos's manager to create a short documentary for the group's 40th anniversary. He admits he didn't know a lot about Kronos then, but he was struck by something David said in an interview. We have not created the bulletproof piece of music that, you know, a young child can wrap around herself or a, a grandparent can wrap around his family or we haven't been able to do that yet, but I think it's possible and I'm, I'm looking for it and I spend every minute of my waking life trying to find that. That's our job. Over the years, Kronos has gone through several different members. The current group consists of founder David Harrington, longtime members John Sherba and Hank Dutt, who each play violin, and the Korean cellist Sonny Yang, who joined in 2013. The group has worked with hundreds of composers and collaborators. Several appear in the film, including Philip Glass, Laurie Anderson, and Terry Riley. Sam's chief collaborator on A Thousand Thoughts is Joe Beanie, as a co-director, co-writer, and editor. I met up with Sam and David last week in Detroit, where A Thousand Thoughts was being performed at the Free Film Festival, put on by the Detroit Free Press. As I set up my microphones, David was scrolling through music tracks on YouTube. He showed us a bit of his grandchild's violin class, out of tune, but still delightful to him. Then he shared a recent folk song called The President Sang Amazing Grace. The composer Zoe Mulford was inspired by President Obama's speech after the 2015 Charleston church shooting. So, of course, David had to look up that clip. Amazing. 
amazing grace how sweet the sound that David's wide-ranging musical tastes are well-documented in A Thousand Thoughts. I asked Sam how he prepared for the eclecticism of the Kronos Quartet. I mean, their repertoire is vast, and I don't know who besides David really knows all of it. Uh, And I, you know, I love music and know some about music, but I'm not a musicologist, and I didn't have a ton of knowledge about classical music. So I was starting from a place of, of, of not knowing a lot. And I had to learn, I, just to not be a complete idiot was a, you know, a big goal. And I think I've gotten that far, but, um, you know, there's David's still, giving a thumbs up. Right. There are t- still many people Isn't who- Isn't that what we do in life? <laughs> There are many people who know far more about Kronos and their repertoire than me. The Kronos origin story goes back to 1973, during a time of civil unrest and the Vietnam War. In the film, David describes having an epiphany. We had the radio on late one night, and all of a sudden I started hearing this incredibly wonderful, scary, beautiful, haunting music. At first, I didn't even know what instruments were playing. I didn't know that it was a string quartet. That's what I want. I I want music to jump out of the radio speakers and jump right into the consciousness of not only myself, but whoever's nearby. Well, that's what happened to me that night. The piece he heard was Black Angels by the composer George Crumb. Kronos performs it in A Thousand Thoughts. At the time David first heard Black Angels, other young people were being electrified by rock and roll. I asked David why it was George Crumb that spoke to him. Well, I remember the exact month. It was August of 1973 when I heard Black Angels. And for me, there was, um, there was a lot going on in the world of music at that point. And, and for me, um, internally as well. And I'd grown up playing string quartet music since I was 12. A lot of it was uh, European music. And, you know, then along came um, 
well, when I was about 16, I started, maybe a little earlier, started hearing uh, Bartok and really got into that sound. then started playing uh, the most recent music I could find. And, and uh, you know, as time's going on, then at a certain point I encountered Jimi Hendrix. And then there was the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock. And I wanted to do something that reconciled what I grew up with and the Star Spangled Banner that Hendrix did. That's what I wanted to do. All of a sudden, in August of 1973, I heard the piece that would allow me to do that, and that's Black Angels. Um, when th this project arose, so... Sam originally did this short piece for the 40th anniversary of Kronos, and then I, as I understand it, came to you and said, I'd like to do a longer piece. Um, what were the things going through your mind about someone taking on this job of telling the story of the Kronos Quartet? <laughs> <laughs> He's giving me a quizzical look. Um, well, I mean, the, the one thing that it, it would... There's, you know, in 40-some years, there, there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of things that have happened, and some of them um, are incredibly wonderful, and some of them are incredibly painful. And if you're going to tell the story of the group, there will have to be a balance of those things. So I was personally uh, fearful of... Um, some of the very personal things that w would likely need to be told. And um, I think it was the fact that we all trusted Sam with our history that allowed us to, to feel we could do this. And, and of course, um, Sam needed to make his film and he needed even to make his soundtrack. <laughs> and I'm not used to letting somebody uh, in on, on, on making the program of our presentation. That's David's job, and he meticulously works on the program and the order. So this is like a radical giving up control. And so... Um, I remember the first time when, when you know when you started uh, kind of thinking of of what the the music would be, and I've been encountering this lately. We we did this recently with a dance company where, uh, you know, we basically said, okay, here's 25 pieces. You can do whatever you want, and and the choreographer did whatever he wanted, and I I looked at it and I thought. What a lousy idea. <laughs> and then we started doing it, and it was an incredibly great idea. So, you know, I think um, 
trusting someone else to take the work and find a new form for it is something that's been a little difficult for me personally. Mm -hmm. I have to say that. But every time... Which is so interesting to hear because you work so much in collaboration. Uh, Sam says in the piece that you've commissioned over 900 works by composers. As Sam gets that wrong every time. It's it's over a thousand pieces, by the way. It's probably <laughs> closer to... A, <laughs> now I say a thousand. Okay, good. <laughs> um, but, well, yes, but, it, you know, to me, the sequencing, what you play... It's collaboration where you're in control. Control isn't quite the, the thing I'm thinking of so much as, as, as that we form something together. And, and in this case, um, I mean, we all felt that the music had to be chosen by Sam. I, I mean, and Joe. And Joe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it seemed like that, that was something we needed to do. And, and, and so I just needed to get used to that. And, and then by the time we, we began to rehearse it, um, I, f I felt, yes, this is right. This is, this is good. This is... And, and, of course, you did listen to us on a couple of yeah. elements. They which... had some great and important suggestions. And so, so it, it ended up being a collaboration. Uh, since you brought up Joe and he's not in the room... Yeah. I should ask you to talk about your collaboration with Joe Beanie on this. Yeah, so the piece is by me and Joe Beanie. And Joe Beanie, for the few people who don't know, is a great, legendary documentary editor. He edited all of Herzog's stuff for many years and Lynn Ramsey and Andrew Arnold's movies. So he's super talented. And I met him about four years ago at a Sundance documentary edit lab and heard him talk. And the things he said about film just wowed me. You know, he's got a great sensibility. And so we became friends and then said, hey, we should work together on something. And then I was sort of starting this project or halfway through and said, hey, you want to work on it, Joe? And that was that was uh, one of the best things I've ever done, I think, because to me, good collaborations mean what you end up with is better than what either would have done alone. And I think that's certainly true for this piece, and Joe. Joe brought a lot in terms of writing and directing and just has a, has a good way. His sense of timing. Yeah. The, 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 uh, I mean, um, you know, when we started putting all the pieces together, you did feel that, that Joe was, was f forming the, the diction of, yeah. of the piece or yeah. something in a really great way. It's funny because mu editors in some ways are very close to musicians or there's a lot of overlap in terms of what editors and musicians do, working with timing and being very precise. So he's a master at that and brought a lot to that. There's certain edits I still, you know, I sit on stage and watch the piece for long stretches and there's still edits where every time I see it I think, my God, that's a fantastic edit. And it's Joe. That's Joe. Can you give me an example of one? Yeah. There's a, my favorite edit in the entire movie. There's a, a shot. Terry Riley is, there's the section with him talking about lying on the ground, looking up at the trees. And you, the shot is up at the trees. And it's just, the sun is sort of coming in and out of these trees. And it's this very abstract, cool shot. And then it cuts to David the interview we're doing with him, and the sun is um, sort of moving on his face. 
and we were setting up the shot still. So it's a little bit of extra. You'd never use it normally, but it's fucking brilliant. That little transition is just sublime. So good. That's all Joe. Can you talk about how you did construct this piece? How it, the the hubris of selecting <laughs> uh, a small number of uh, of musical pieces? To yeah, tell the story, I mean this the you're there's no way to win with this project. You know, there's there what they've done, who they've worked with, the pieces they've played is so vast. You will always be it will always be incomplete, and somebody can always say, "What about this?" And so you kind of. I had to accept that and then just say, um, you know, looking at this mathematically, I maybe can have 10 pieces of music, 12, and how can that represent what they've done in the best way I can do? So that was it. And also, I mean, there's a other, it's very complicated because then all the pieces have to be cinematic or my test with music is it has to move me in, in a certain way. And they're great pieces of music that they've done that I, w- I wouldn't feel that way about. And so that's an extra filter that adds a level of subjectivity to it and complexity. So figuring that all out and then, you know, we were at some point going to try to include a John Cage piece. And it was this complicated thing where they would go to different parts of the venue, the auditorium, and play with stopwatches and... You know, that would have been super cool, but at a certain point, I was like, we can't do this, this. And also the piece itself, you know, sort of the most interesting thing about it is the concept, I think. So, you know, just we, we cut that at a certain point, but that was hard to, to figure out the way things all got went together. The final piece in A Thousand Thoughts is Orange Blossom Special, a bluegrass song by Irvin T. Rouse. <laughs> I asked David about his feelings for that song. That piece came about um, when I heard uh, the man that became the best man at my wedding nearly 50 years ago, Bob Winquist. I heard Bob play that in Canada, and it was so good what he played. And over the years, I, I asked Bob if he would make a version for Kronos. Well, he tried to do it, and it, it didn't quite work. But we had the, his notes. And then at a certain point, it seemed to me that it would be good for Kronos if we played that piece. Uh, John's brother had died. And I just thought it would be great if John had something that was wild and fast. And and I knew the Scotty Stoneman version of Orange Blossom. And so I asked Danny Clay, a young composer, arranger in uh, San Francisco, if he could imagine putting together Bob Winquist's version and Scotty Stoneman's version of Orange Blossom Special so that Kronos could play it. And 
I'm not sure how much of that story I ever told Sam. This might be news to him right you now. You told me that. Did I tell yeah. you that? Okay. It's a very poignant. That's poignant, I think. And um, we've been playing it ever since. And, and um, you know, it was interesting. We, we were in Nashville the other night in Austin. And in both towns, I got asked, "Did you did you decide to play that just because you're in the South?" And I said, "No, no. We played it in Athens. We played it in London. We we played it every. Uh, you know, that is the ending of the piece. And I would not have thought of that that piece for this film. I don't think anybody in Kronos would have thought of it. Actually, Sam thought of it." Sam, how did you and Joe come to that piece as a way to finish it off? I had seen them, you know, I'd been to a million concerts of theirs while I was working on the piece, and so I'd seen them play that in concert, and I just loved that note, the end of that is such a fantastic ending. It's, you know, you just play the shit out of that piece, and then it you think it's over, everybody claps, and then it comes back, and, you know, it's just this the greatest end. And so, you know, there are a million ways you could end this piece, and at some point we had a much more ponderous, sort of, like, tragic ending, and it just... I did think, fuck that, at some point. We just gotta... This is a great way to end it, you know? it's And in terms of musically, too, them, you know, sort of cycling through the history of classical music and ending up with this American sort of classic tune felt appropriate. In A Thousand Thoughts, Sam describes his motive to perform it live instead of recording it all on film. I think what we're doing here tonight is a little like that as well, reaching for some elusive experience of what makes the Kronos Quartet and their music so powerful. The fact that we're doing this together is important. What I like about this live format is that you end up with something different every time. It's ephemeral, kind of like the Lost Chord. A normal documentary is a fixed, permanent thing, which is nuts, because there's a million ways to tell every, any story. And I wanted to press on that a little bit, because uh, I wonder how different it is. I mean, you're working with a script, yeah. more or less. You're working with the same set of clips, That's the same songs. Uh, each time you perform it. So can you describe what you mean by yeah. it being different? Well, that's a great question. And in some ways, you're right. It is basically the same show every time we do it, the same film. But the funny thing is, if you really, for us, every show is totally different. I always feel different afterwards. You know, that we sometimes do two shows in one night in the same place. And even there, the first show, first show was okay, the second show was great. And it depends on a million subtle, imperceptible things, how they're feeling, how I'm feeling. Remember the second, the first show, no, the second show in Nashville, you guys killed it. That was the best I've ever heard you play. And that, you know, it was like, it's the same piece, but... Sorry for any listeners who saw the first show in Nashville. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, based on the size of the room, is it sold out? Is it half full? Or is there a bar? Have people drunk before the show? What about the popcorn, Sam? Oh, tell your thing about yeah, popcorn. popcorn and Castro Theater. <laughs> that was incredible. You know, 
the 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 fragrance of that. I mean, I, I've associated popcorn with very happy moments in my life. Okay, and so here we are. Um, my family is there. My daughter, my grandkids, and Castro Theater in San Francisco. Yeah, huge show. Yeah, and you know the, there are, as I said, some very tough moments. And I'm smelling popcorn when I'm hearing my voice talk about the death of my son. And my grandkids have never heard me talk about that. And they're smelling popcorn. And I'm thinking, this is good. This is good. I like this. <laughs> should be in the writer that popcorn is sold. <laughs> it should be. It should be. I want to ask you about... Uh, life on the road because you've had so much uh, experience with it and Sam maybe you have more experience with it now that you've been touring with these uh, different live performances from the outside life on the road is something people can romanticize and um, and having a little bit of experience with myself as you know kind of film festival uh, gypsy I know the, the highs and then also lows that can be experienced with, uh, of life on the road. You know, the highs might be obvious. You're meeting new people. You're in new places. That's exciting. And uh, but then the lows is you're back in your hotel room away from your family thinking, what am I doing? David, you've had decades of experience uh, with this. I wonder if you can share your wisdom from, uh, from being on the road. Well, one thing that's missing from the film... And uh, I, I <laughs> Here just <we> go. one, <laughs> uh, one of the many. But one of the things is is what Howard Zinn said to me. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but the, the thing that really empowered me was when Howard Zinn told me, you know, guys like Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld are actually afraid of musicians. And I thought to myself, okay. All right, I can deal with this. <laughs> David is puffing up his chest. <laughs> <laughs> he is. And now it's even puffier, uh, considering who we have uh, in control. And, um, you know, I, I'm looking at this trajectory of life of, yes, being away from, from um, my family, but I, I am using Howard's words every day. Every day I think about it. And, you know, um, you know trying to um, spread the word about the power of, of music, trying to um, make things a little bit better. I mean, you know, uh, and, and everybody in my family, I'm speaking totally personally, but everybody knows that, this is, that they are sacrificing for this. But we're all in it together, you know? And that's what Howard said, and, and that is in the movie, that you can't do something by yourself. Sam, any of your own experiences? Uh, the road, wisdom of the road. I don't know if I've gotten any wisdom, but I, I, I mean, one of the things in terms of filmmaking, you know, there's some filmmakers who make a film and just want to be done with it and have somebody else put it out in the world, and they want to go back to the edit room or shooting and start something new. I've always loved the process of putting a film out and engaging with the world. That's sort of my favorite part. And so one of the things I like about the live cinema work is that 
that period goes on much longer. You tour with the film for many years, and this we're setting up shows for 2021, and I'm assuming we're going to be doing this for a long time, and I really like that. I like traveling. I mean, yes, it is sometimes hard to be away and stuff, but I like it, and I get a lot of energy from audiences and from showing the work. Well, it is a great point from a filmmaking standpoint, because I know from film festivals, the most common experience I have with a film director when they've showing their film for the fourth or fifth or 50th time is they'll come, they'll introduce the film, they'll stay for five minutes, make sure the sound is good, and then we'll go out for a drink and come back, watch the last five minutes and uh, do a Q&A. There's, there's a couple filmmakers and I can name them, but Barbara Koppel, Alan Berliner are two filmmakers. Every time I show their work, they sit through the whole film. Wow, that's super interesting. And and of the hundreds of filmmakers who I've hosted, like they're the only two I can think <laughs> of who do that consistently. They're Penabaker, both pretty great, too. D.A. Pennebaker um, uh, has always sat through uh, his films. So, And I think that some filmmakers you know, find it excruciating to sit through their films because you're you're just you're watching a collection of things that oh if only I yeah. had been able to do this differently and see with me it's the opposite because I sit there on the stage like I said for long periods I'm just sitting there and I'm watching them and watching the screen and I do three things I marvel at how good they sound and how nice it is to be close to them I think to myself Joe Beanie's a great editor at certain moments and then I Constantly, every time I think, Kirsten Johnson is great, you know, because she filmed it. And those shots of Terry Riley lying on the ground, you know, they're just, it's funny to say this about your own film, but I'm really saying it about their work. I love this stuff. I love to sit there through it. You know, the thing also that to mention is, is the audience and what, what we get. And early on, the, one of the moments that I love is is when Sam invites everyone to listen to the sound of the room. And there becomes this this kind of invitation to internalize what your ears are bringing in. And I, I really do think that that, and I've come to think this over, over the time we've been presenting A Thousand Thoughts, that that moment you know, maybe it it should be a part of every concert that mm. we play. Not not only a thousand thoughts, because what what happens is the audience starts um, thinking about hearing and yeah. listening. And um, what we've noticed is the response at the end of a thousand thoughts. I mean, it's, th that has been absolutely consistent, no matter where we play. And, you know, the first time we did it at um, uh, Sundance, I had no idea what, <laughs> what to expect. None of us had any idea. It was like, oh, boy. And, and <laughs> not, what is it, 7,000 feet up? So, so yeah. I mean, I, w I was like a little dizzy to begin with. And, and, and we go in there, and, we, and, and, and there's this audience, and they're, and they're seeing us on stage, and they're, you know, I'm having to... Th Think about how weird it is that they're seeing me like forty years ago, and you know, and uh, you know, uh, all, I, I'm not even going to get into the, all that. But but it, I mean, it's just seeing the, this whole whole thing. It, it, well, it's it's interesting because 
there's this other narrative going on while you're performing, the narrative of your career that does every night you perform it take you back to some uh, dark points and um, and very happy points too it's 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 a combination of it's it, it's you're kind of reaching into life in a way and i i find um sometimes i'm incredibly spaced out after a thousand thoughts it, it's i almost need to be by myself that that there's something that has been revealed or or overturned or something that that just makes me want want to you know go into a dark room and just think and uh, listen to the room <laughs> <laughs> that john cage thing is important though i think because the way people listen to movies is very passive you know especially we're used to big movies with a ton of sound design and you sit back and it really washes over you and you're very much just sort of sitting there. And I think what that moment does is it engages people's ears in a way that films never do and gets them to think about listening and that opens up a kind of receptivity throughout the rest of the piece. And every time uh, Sam says that, I, I don't know if I've told you this, but. There's the, the story about uh, uh, when we first started working with John Cage. This was in the early 80s. Well, my kids were in grade school at that point, and, and the Weekly Reader, which is, it w was a, by then maybe it was a monthly reader. I, I don't know, but anyway, there was an article about John Cage in four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. And, um, that was something your daughter got at school. Yeah, yeah, and so that that was a conversation point in in the in the house, and and um, um, it became the punishment for my kids if they were too noisy or too. I'd say, okay, it's time to play John Cage's piece. You go to that <laughs> corner. You go to that corner, and it's going to start now. <laughs> And so that piece got played in our our home a few times. And so every time you, I'm thinking, <laughs> that's didn't, what I'm thinking about. Didn't you say once John Cage called you and yes, your daughter answered? Yeah, and I was yeah. like, what? Yeah, Bonnie Bonnie answered the phone. John Cage called, and, and and she had just read the Weekly Reader. It was it was unbelievable timing, actually. And Bonnie said in her little girl voice, "Daddy, it's John Cage." <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's a uh, segment of the piece where you talk about uh, instruments and the, the instruments and the incredible history that each of these instruments have th uh, that you play. Um, and I think for, uh, you know, a, a non-musician, it can be a little mysterious understanding that relationship you have to your instrument. Um, and I wonder if you could speak about that a little bit more. I mean, if, if tonight you had lost your violin and, ha and had to play with someone else's violin or trade violins with one of your colleagues, what would that mean? Hmm, boy, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really great question. It, it, it would mean, um, that would be really tough, really tough for me. Um, it's not that I couldn't play somebody else's instrument. I could do that. And um, 
it's, um, I mean, and I'm probably different than a lot of other um, violinists. You know, I, I don't really like to go to violin shops and try out, you know, this Stradivarius, that Guarneri, that, uh, that's not something I do. I would rather spend my time trying to find the next great piece and working with composers and trying to activate our musical environment. But I realize that a lot of people love to do that. They love to try out this bow and that bow. And, and you know, it's kind of something that most people love to do. What I love to do is try to get my violin to be even more personal all the time and to share my uh, life. And I want to share it with this instrument that has been with me um, for my entire career. And it, it's... Um, you know, like Sam says in the movie, 200 years from now, somebody else will be playing that violin and they'll have no idea what we've done. And, and that is absolutely true. But for me, that doesn't matter tonight. What I want is, is that instrument that has all of those notes. That instrument has heard all the m mistakes I've made. It's heard the few really good notes I've made in all these years. And it's been there for all the conversations. I mean, if you listen carefully to that violin, you can hear the voice of Henrik Goretzky and, and Terry Riley and Alexander Vrabelov and some of the most intensely beautiful rehearsals we've ever had. That violin has been there. And to me, there's, 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 there will never be another instrument like that for me. Sam, in the movie, Philip Glass talks about uh, music being a, a place, a place as real as Chicago. And he says, you know, any musician uh, will describe having one foot in the world we live in and one foot in the world of music. Um, and it strikes me that that makes it, in, for someone who doesn't live in the world of music, um, can be intimidating to talk to people who do live in the world of music because it's like you're talking to someone who speaks a different language that you're trying to understand. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about this process of interviewing all these great composers. You know, it, like when you go to interview a Terry Riley, is it intimidating to visit a person like that who lives in a different plane of music? Well, it's a great question, and I'm not a musician. I love music and I work with music, but I'm not a musician or a musicologist and I don't live in that other place of music. But I think there's a there's a certain value in, in at least documentary filmmaking in being an outsider or a certain strength that comes from that. I made a movie about the language Esperanto and I was very deliberate that I didn't learn Esperanto. I didn't want to become an Esperanto speaker making a, lang a movie about this language I spoke. I was somebody on the outside. And in some ways, this is the same. And I think if you can, in a subtle way, communicate to people, I know a lot about Kronos. I've done my research. I'm not an idiot, but I'm not a musician either. People will take you seriously. So I never had a 
trouble with people saying like, ah, you don't know your shit. But it is a, it's a little bit of a complicated dance there. You know, the, the other thing is that um, people that are really listening to the music inside of themselves know how little they know. And Henrik Goretzky, the last thing he said to me, that last dinner we had, the last time I got to see Henrik, he said, I hope one day I'll understand how music works. This is right at the end of his life. And I thought to myself, if Henrik doesn't know how it works, nobody does. And it just reconfirmed you know, what Vita Reynolds said to me, music can always be better. And, and you know, people that are, are, are shaping it and, and listening, um, it, it's not like we know more about it than the next person. You know, maybe that's what I love so much about the, <laughs> the beginning violin class at, at <laughs> Francis Scott Key Elementary School. It's so out of tune, and yet it's so perfect. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, and those kids know as much as, as any of us do about music. You know, I just decided when I was about that age, I was going to scrape on this thing for my whole life. But does that give me any more real knowledge? I don't think so. I'm willing to say you're more knowledgeable about music than I am. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go there. No, okay, but I've been around it. But, but I'm, I'm talking about it, absorbing the actual essence of it. That, that is something that every human being, we're, we're all in the same place. And I, I'm not trying to say, well, I don't know anything about it. I'm, okay, you know, I do spend my, my time trying to get to, to know more aspects of it and all that. But true understanding is something that happens in these little packets of time. And we don't have control over it, really, I don't think. You've spent this 50-year-plus journey uh, studying music from all over the world, playing music uh, from all over the world, um, and... Something that I take away from the film is the excitement you have and a sense of discovery. And, uh, and it's exciting to me to, to think that after this 50-year journey, you're still discovering uh, things. And I wonder if you could share something that you feel like you've recently discovered about music or learned about music. Well, right now, uh, one of the things I'm doing, and in fact, you, you heard a little bit of it as you were setting up here, um, Chronos uh, will be celebrating um, Pete Seeger at 100. So this May is Seeger's 100th year. And for me, um, you know, I grew up listening to him. I played his music for my kids. We played it for our grandkids. And I just think that he's one of uh, America's most wonderful persons, most wonderful musicians. And, uh, okay, how do you celebrate the, the work of this man who, who brought a whole lot of music from different cultures to uh, our country? So, for example, uh, when he went to India, 
One of the things he, he liked to do was when he went to a new country that he'd never been to, he liked to learn a song from that country and bring it back to our country. And at a certain point, I realized, you know, that's what Kronos does. And, and I started thinking, well, Pete Seeger was playing Kronos concerts many years before Kronos was doing it. And there's other people. Nina Simone did. And I, I start to see these connections between what we do and other, uh, other musicians. But in listening to this, this piece, um, the, the piece that Seeger brought back from India, and realizing it was one of Gandhi's favorite songs, and, and it was sung on the long march that they, they did. And Seeger taught himself enough Hindi to sing it. And, and the other day, um, Sonny Yang, our cellist, um, wrote out the melody of that song, and Hank, our violist, played it, the melody. Sonny added a cello tabla part. I brought out our Shruti box, which is a, like a little hand accordion, and John was playing the tambura that we use. And all of a sudden, this song that Seeger brought to American music had a totally different form. And I thought, I like this. This is cool. <laughs> you know, it's wonderful. And so that's one way we're going to celebrate Seeger at 100. Another way is, and this is what you heard as you were coming in here today, um, a young woman, Zoe Mulford, wrote a song that I happened to hear Joan Baez sing at a civil rights gathering a few months ago. Uh, this song is called The President Sang Amazing Grace. And I realized to celebrate Seeger at 100, we need to do something that he would have wanted to sing if he were around today and that couldn't exist without his work, could not exist. And Zoe Mulford wrote that song. And what you were hearing was her version and then Joan Baez's version. And then you heard the president, President Obama, singing Amazing Grace in Charleston at that memorial. And that's the kind of thing that Pete Seeger brought to our world of music. And it's definitely going to be part of our celebration. We argued where to lay the blame On one man's hate or our nation's shame Some sickness of the mind or soul And how the wounds might be made whole But no words could say what must be said For all the living and the dead So on that day and in that place The president said Amazing grace My president sang amazing grace I want to thank Sam Green and David Harrington for joining me. Their film project about the Kronos Quartet is A Thousand Thoughts. It comes to New York's Town Hall on April 25th and to other cities in the coming months. (laughs) 
If you're in New York City, please join us in person for Pure Nonfiction at IFC Center. Each Tuesday, we show a documentary followed by a conversation with the filmmakers or other special guests. Our spring season runs through the end of May. You can get more information on our website. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, who passed away last month at age 82. Our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Pure Nonfiction. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.